Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is our podcast, episode 54, videocast, episode 64, for the week ending January 8th. 2021. So as always, we're going to start with some of our media spots where we can go through a lot of information in a short amount of time. I'd like to thank Liz Clayman and Jacqueline D'Ambrosi Scales for having me on the Clayman countdown on Monday. Um, and I was on just as the market was making uh, its lows. I think the Dow was down around 500 points or so. And this is exactly what we were talking about uh, in last week's podcast video cast that it was likely we were going to get some type of fake out where all the people who bought that tail risk, if you recall, that, that bought uh, that we looked at with the CBOE SKU index, people buying very, very expensive tail risk, were going to feel like they were going to get paid and then you know, Lucy was going to take the Charlie, the football away from Charlie Brown once again. And that's exactly what happened. So Liz asked, you know, what, what's going on? And I said, well, you know, is this a shakeout or a fake out? I think it's a fake out. And the market was down on, you know, election jitters, etc. But what's interesting is it turned out that which was feared the most uh, was in effectively well received by the market uh, due to the stimulus. Also, we discussed kind of um, the outlook moving forward with the November, December up 10%. Ryan Dietrich had put out a post a, a week ago. Um, what is what is that forebode for the markets? And it's actually positive. The average since uh, World War II, when you have that type of year-end rally, is uh, up 3% in January and up 18.1% for the full year, which would be really, really positive for 2021 uh, after a what turned out to be a, a pretty good year in uh, 2020. So uh, that doesn't preclude, you know, your normal average um, entry year drawdown can be as uh, around 14%. I'm not sure that we'll see quite that much this year after coming off such a uh, uh, big drawdown in 2020. But, um, you know, getting to mid-teens by the end of the year is a reasonable expectation. Uh, and then the other aspect that I covered with Liz was that Upward earnings revisions, it's very rare to have. Uh, they've basically been went up, you know, most weeks of the last 12 weeks of the year. And when that happens, the average uh, three-month performance in, which would be Q1 2021, is plus 4.43%, and the quarter finishes positive 85% of the time. So a lot of tailwinds. Now, we're not oblivious to the froth, and we'll discuss that in this podcast as we did in the article over the uh, midweek. Um, but I said to Liz, the, the theme of the week, theme of this year is going to be the last shall be first. So the suggestion was to trim some of the stay at home and tech and growth and continue to add to the reopening and value and cyclicals on weakness. And the positioning we're seeing is changing uh, dramatically among managers. So the, the weights are changing, slowly shifting. You're seeing in the investment surveys consistently now managers are, are, are uh, starting to reposition out of uh, what's worked the last uh, two plus years and into what's going to work, which we believe are going to be value and cyclicals. And... Um, and then we put out our top four picks for the year. Now, some of these are carryovers from last year that have already started to work, uh, and some of them are new. But uh, the top four picks for 2021, uh, Wells Fargo, Raytheon, ExxonMobil, and Walgreens Boots Alliance. It's interesting, you know, uh, how much 
flack I took for Wells Fargo, uh, you know, last year, no one believed it. You know, banks are, you know, who needs all these buildings and pens with chains and, and different things, you know, that banks would never work. And, um, you know, now Wells Fargo is up close to 70% off its lows. Uh, I think we're just getting started here. Wells has some, some room to run. Uh, Financials have been taking up earnings estimates. We're going to talk about that at the end of this podcast. So we like we like continued strength in Wells Fargo. Um, we like uh, defense stocks. Obviously, Raytheon is is a, a bellwether there. So Raytheon was our second pick. Exxon Mobil's also had a huge run now, uh, but we think that has continued strength uh, looking out 12 to 18 months. And Walgreens Boots Alliance, another hated stock, uh, that's starting to get a bid. They uh, actually the the um, we said that on Monday, and here we are on Friday. Thursday, they reported earnings, beat expectations, and the stock's up uh, pretty meaningfully this week. So those are the top four picks. And, you know, in the scheme of that transition that we're talking about where – and it's not going to be entirely zero sum. So if you if you want to move forward and have no exposure to tech, you're going to get left behind. But – on a relative outperformance, if you've been underweight because the indices are, are very low weights in the value and cyclicals, and that's going to start to change, uh, this is kind of what we have to look forward to. If you take a look at this chart, this is a long-term chart of value versus growth. And, you know, if you think you kind of missed these moves in banks and uh banks, financials, energy that we've been pounding the table on. And yeah, some of them are up 50 and 70% now in the last couple of months. But take a look contextually at how far we have to go. We're just making this turn as we were in late 2001, uh, late 2000 rather, um, right now. So, so there's tremendous opportunity. And if and when we do get some consolidation to digest the big gains uh, or weakness in the Q Q1 um, or early Q2, uh, that would be probably one of your, you know, last great opportunities to get get meaningful exposure on the value and cyclicals if you've missed the first huge leg up. Um, so, but this really just can give you some context of the potent, potential moving forward. Uh, taking a look at history. So uh, this gives you an idea of what's been happening so far this year. This was CNBC just from today. I think um, um, it'll come to me who, are, who, who was talking. Uh, uh, Bob Pisani uh, was talking about this, either Bob Pisani or Mike Santoli. But uh, Russell's uh, small caps are up 5% year to date. You know, we're it's it's January 8th. So we're, you know, five sessions in. Uh, Russell's up five percent. S and P's up one percent. Energy is up nine percent, which is really exciting. And value's up two percent. So it's it's dramatically outperforming everything that we spent the last three to six months about talking on this podcast and video cast is uh, is really playing out. So that's positive to see. So now we start ha- start to have to look uh, for where's the puck going next because uh, we'll hold what we have and that's doing great. We'll add on any weakness, uh, but we'll start to look at uh, what's next. So Walgreens shares rise after um, after earnings top estimates fueled by higher drug sales. So that was good to see. And don't forget, you know, you've got the whole Boots Alliance part in the uk that's going to start to recover as more and more people get vaccinated and they get back to business so uh, a lot of promising things happening i think for walgreens which is one of the dogs in the dow by the way um and a nice dividend to boot so 
Uh, also want to thank, um, well, first off, thanks thanks again to Liz and to Jacqueline D'Ambrosi Scales over at Fox Business. And want to thank Medicine and Shivani Kumarasan for putting me in their Reuters article earlier this week. I said a lot of people that may have missed out or sold at the wrong time last year are now saying I want to get in. The coast is clear, the vaccines are coming, and they want to start to participate in the market. And uh, it's just a question of state governments now picking up the pace of vaccine administration. So, yeah, and and I do think, um, you know, there have been so many people looking for a correction since uh, late November, early December. And I kept saying later, later, let's, you know, this thing's got legs. And, um, you know, now you are starting to see some of the reluctant money forced in. I think that um, President-elect Biden's announcement today that, uh, which you can see here, he's demanding trillions of dollars of in aid as U.S. jobs drop. Uh, you know, U.S. jobs are temporarily down. We'll talk about the jobs report uh, today. Um, well, we can bring it up right now. So basically what you saw here was um, non-farm payrolls dropped 140,000 relative to plus 71,000 expectations and plus 336 uh, last print. And um, But yesterday you saw continuing claims, which is the most important number to watch, continue to come down. So expectations were 5.2 million, it dropped to 5.07. So that's all moving in the right direction. A lot of this is regional based on the shutdowns and, and the recent spikes, which seem to be plateauing. So I think it's temporary. But if it's a catalyst for more stimulus, the market's not going to argue with it. It's going to listen to them, and uh, and that's exactly what it did. So, so he's looking for trillions of dollars. He's looking for two thousand dollar checks. Market was down midday because Senator Manchin said he wasn't sure, and then the market dropped two hundred points, and then he came back and said, "Well, uh, he's not sure that he's not sure." And then the market rose, and then obviously we had. Uh, uh, President-elect Biden come out and really take the bazooka out and say, we want big checks, we want money for business. And he said it's going to be trillions and trillions of dollars. So uh, and he wants minimum wage at $15 minimum. So that's happening. And guess what? The bond market responded accordingly. After the blue wave, uh, you saw 10-year yield break out. It's up 21 basis points in the first six days of the year and uh, to new levels. And if you remember last year on our podcast when the 10-year was at 53 basis points and everyone was out saying it was going to 25 basis points, we said by the end of the year, we could see it up at, a, at 100 basis points, which was so non-consensus. This was in the middle of the, you know, basically the battle and everyone's thinking negative yields, you know, 25 basis points, etc. cetera. And uh, we hit it, uh, I think, two or three days later after the turn of the new year. So, so we closed the, the year at like 96 basis points. So that didn't happen. We didn't get to 100 basis points by the end of the year. But now we're at uh, 110. And uh, the market is clear that Biden is now with the blue wave, uh, not only going to ask for trillions, but he's going to get trillions. And that's going to be short term uh, stimulative for uh, for the economy and the market's going to like that. So, uh, again, thank you to Meta Singh and Shivani Kumarasan for including me. Uh, this is this is really the most important chart of the year. This this has huge implications for um, banks in particular, which which, as you know, we love to spend a lot of time on that. And um, 
just just keep an eye on this. This this tells you the whole story. So uh, moving into some some news before we get down to the nitty gritty, the January Almanac. This is uh, Yale Hirsch over at um, uh, that his his I'm sorry Jeff Hirsch. His dad started the Stock Traders Almanac decades ago. And it just basically does the mathematics and it gives you a sense of what to expect in post-election years since January of 1950. The average return for the S&P 500 is uh, 80 basis points or slightly less than a percent. Uh, tech tends to do better, 2.3%. That's pretty big. And the Dow about uh, 60 basis points. So it's generally a uh, positive time for the market. It's the sixth or seventh best month of the year. And uh, that goes to show you. And with the uh, uh, Santa Claus rally coming to bear, that usually bodes well to January for January as well, in addition to the other statistics we talked about with uh, positive earnings, upward earnings revisions. Uh, and the uh, year-end rally tends to follow through for plus 3%. So a lot of tailwinds here, despite the froth, despite the skepticism, despite you know super valuations in pockets and speculative frenzies and some, some retail euphoria. Um, we might have a little more gas in this tank before, before we take a breather, and uh, we'll take it day by day. U.S. bankruptcy filings, get this, hit a 35-year low due to government pandemic aid. And um, this was data from Epic Acer uh, that showed chapter 11, 11 filings used to reorganize larger businesses did jump 29% in 2020 to 7,100 and change from 5,100 in 2019. Uh, but overall filings, including all personal and other business bankruptcies, for the year were 529,000 versus 800,000 annually in recent years. And um, and they, they were even triple that, 2.4 million at the end of the last recession. So to see this drop because of the stimulus is a very positive thing. And you are seeing it, uh, you know, the consumer is actually stronger than they've ever been. And that's reflected by, um, uh, credit card balances being very, very low, savings being very high, money markets being extremely high. The data is all there. And uh, as they're coming out of the house, they're going to unleash that torrent of cash onto the economy. And we're going to see, and the market's obviously discounting a, a, a considerable portion of that, but there, there may be a lot more, especially with trillions more coming from the new administration and uh, blank check to do it with the, with the blue wave. So um, when you win, you get to do whatever you want. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, the Democrats won everything. It couldn't be a clearer sweep and a clearer message uh, from the electorate that they want to see uh, stimulus and they want to see spending. And that's exactly what they're going to get. So um, we saw here some confidence coming back from the consumer borrowing rose in November by the most in five months. Um, this is a this is a big thing because we want to see the consumer come back uh, and pulling up that data actually, yeah. So consumer credit was estimated to be uh, nine billion. It went to fifteen point two seven uh, versus four point five four 
the last print. So this was a big expansion of consumer credit. So they're back in the game. They're coming out of their cocoons and they want to party. And uh, that's why you've seen the articles about the Roaring Twenties. Uh, I think you're going to see travel like you've never seen travel before. Uh, we're booking like crazy. And uh, I think many other people are starting to think about the back half of the year uh, booking trips and, and doing that type of stuff. Although I was on a quick round. Uh, I had to go down to... Uh, uh, Palm Beach for uh, for a day. I was bidding on a property, and it, uh, second property, and it was uh, it's it's just unbelievable. Well, first off, off the 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 plane was packed to the to the brim. Everyone wearing masks. It's all good, but uh, that's number one. Number two, the amount of heat in the market is unbelievable. This was a foreclosure, uh, and I was outbid by four hundred thousand dollars. And I bid 150000 more than what I thought was fair value just because I liked it. And um, and sure enough, I was just crushed. And, and what it told me is like, you know, not the time to play uh, for a guy who likes value and, and likes uh, opportunity. Uh, you know, it needed some work, uh, probably a few hundred thousand dollars of work, but good location, the whole thing. And I was just like, all right, th this game is this game is really too hot. And, and you're just seeing it. It's, it's just trillions of dollars of global liquidity. So we stick to our knitting. We're going to stay in the market. And, and we think, you know, continue to love banks, defense stocks, and energy. And with the really, you know, huge hockey stick moves that we've seen in banks and defense from Q4 of last year to, to now – the greatest opportunity on a relative basis in the short term, I think, is in defense stocks because they've got some weight to them. They're, they've been they've been trading heavy lately. We've been adding, and we think that's that's an opportunity. Obviously, we're, we loaded up on banks and energy in Q3 and Q4, so we're really happy to see what's happening there. Would you would would we be a fresh money buyer of banks and energy? Certainly in pockets because they're going to have a secular run for time for time to come. Uh, yields are just starting to go up. Housing demand is continuing. Um, energy demand, which uh, is our next subject, is is really just going to start to take off. Uh, and you had this huge gift from Saudi Arabia, no, which no one expected because they're all they're already cutting millions of barrels per day in line with their um, plan that goes all the way through April of 2022. And then they just added Saudi Arabia just did another million of barrels uh, 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 of cuts per day, which has kept WTI above 50 just this week and um so so that's really gonna continue to be a tailwind for the larger players in the oil patch and um and some of the smaller players will still continue to go uh bankrupt but the bigger players will accrue share uh you know and you're seeing this bp is up 16 percent this year exxon nine percent chevron six percent uh, Devon, 18%, Occidental, 19%. You know, this is five trading days. So, um, you know, it's just beginning on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, it's like we've been talking about this for two quarters and, and it's it's happening now. And what's also, which we which we pounded the table on in June with that Rystead chart, if you remember from the third week of June, I think we put that out in the podcast video cast and article, um, we continue to get these draws every single week since, more or less. There have been a couple weeks where there have been builds, but look, this week, crude oil inventories, 
8 million barrel draw versus 2 million barrel draw expectations. And seeing the plane full this week um, to get on that last minute flight, you know, it was it was promising to see. And I think people are just going about their lives and everyone's wearing masks. Some people are wearing, wearing the shields. Uh, that's a good thing. And uh, the filters are great and people are following the rules and that's why it's working. So, um, okay, the other thing about uh, oil, this was a great article by Jinju Lee at the Wall Street Journal today. And he said, peak oil, question mark, drivers and voters could delay it for years. And the point that he's making is, you know, BP said that, you know, in the middle of uh, the pandemic in March, when they were just panicked, they said, well, oil demand may have reached its apex in 2019. Well, obviously, it came down relative to uh, uh, previous years. But, you know, they were just in the middle of war, effectively. Demand dropped off a cliff. You know, we saw oil go negative. So naturally, they're going to have that sentiment. Um, but when you actually step back dispassionately, um, cooler heads are saying not only will it be the late 2030s, it might be a lot further because the mechanisms that governments have to uh, curtail use is taxes at the pump. And the case that um, Jinju is making is that, um, you know, drivers are voters. So if they go too aggressively with tax at the pump, what they're going to find is that they're going to have a hard time getting reelected. And especially you're seeing demand for SUVs. The other thing that you're seeing that he notes is that uh, in all these governments in the emerging markets where they're putting emission standards on vehicles, all these vehicles are being then sold at a discount to developing markets like in Africa. So um, these higher emission cars are not going anywhere. They're just getting transferred to a different continent where demand is just starting to, to pick up. And that's why he's making the case that it's going to be much longer than people think, because to put these mechanisms in place, it requires the will of the, the people. And um, they're increasingly buying energy thirsty SUVs in 2020. You know, you, the car market was hot and they were buying that. that. That's number one. Number two is he noted that the cost of fueling, uh, let's see, the cost of fueling a car via electric versus fossil fuels, the electric cost of average cost of electricity went up dramatically more than the average cost of fossil fuels or or gasoline and if that trend continues the electric cars are going to be a harder sell and then finally he makes the case that um you know china removed their subsidies for electric vehicles in 2019 leading to a steep, steep decline in sales France announced a cutback on electric vehicle sub, uh, subsidies for future years, even as it plans to end sales of fossil fuel powered cars by 2040. So these things are conflicting. It's, it's the idealistic outlook of what they want to achieve and the practical output uh, on what they could actually implement versus the voter demand for these different things. So um, so that's, that's basically it. But the, the cost of fueling Right now, 
charging your car, the cost of fueling an electric car, what he's saying is 50% of fueling your car with uh, fossil fuels. Uh, and that is narrowing, meaning electricity is, is generally going up while fossil fuels have been subdued. I think fossil fuels are actually going to have uh, a run here in the, over the next few years. And we've talked about that for since uh, since oil went negative, basically, that you know, over the next 12 to 18 months, get ready, you're going to see $3 at the pump, you're going to see $60 plus WTI. Well, now we're already, I think we hit 53 this week on WTI. So we're, we're getting there well ahead of schedule. And I think that's actually going to help the electric vehicle uh, and renewable sectors in the next few years as oil does get back up to $70 and you do see $3, $350, $4 at the pump, I think people are going to say, okay, let's let's see about getting solar panels. Let's see about getting that battery on the wall uh, for intermittent storage. And let's see about uh, getting an electric vehicle. And, and also the electric vehicle prices will be coming down. So particularly in the developed world, the thesis is correct. It probably just takes longer. And the catalyst may in fact be the short-term success of the fossil fuel industry, meaning prices go up dramatically for, for the commodity and margins for those companies. And that may very well be the last hurrah. And, and that's, that's where uh, EVs will, will really get their tailwind if you do see gas prices go up dramatically. And, and with the administration, the new administration likely curtailing drilling, they'll facilitate that with energy prices in the market going up high um, and, um, you know, and, and a, a potential demand from customers to get away from that because they don't want to pay the high gas prices if they can um, charge cheaper. Plus, you'll get more and more electric trucks. Americans like big SUVs. So, uh, but but I, I thought this was a really good non-consensus article that's, that's realistic and not seeing the short term through rose-colored glasses. It is going to take time. It will happen eventually. That, that, that's probably a very good thing. Uh, but where we are and where we're going. And uh, so highly recommend it. Again, peak oil drivers and voters could delay it for years. Jinju Lee over at the Wall Street Journal. Next, uh, what's happening with Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine? It's interesting. This is uh, uh, really positive because we're, it's expected that they're going to apply. We could have data this month uh, and get emergency approval authorization filing uh, in early February. If we got data, uh, this may be, you know, a lot of uh, institution. The the guy who runs the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey over, uh, w you know, interviewing 500 billion AUM of institutional managers. We cover that on a uh, every month when that comes out, the second week of the month. Uh, had had said the contrarian trade was to sell the vaccine. You know, the vaccine rollout's been relatively slow. It's picking up pace. It looks like we're going to get to a million a day, uh, plus the people who have been infected. We could have 60 million percent of the population, uh, 60 60 percent of the population with antibodies or vaccines by Q2, which gets us closer to herd immunity. Certainly, it'll bring the the case count down dramatically, the death count uh, dramatically, but. Uh, I think that maybe this would be the sell the vaccine when this is finally announced at the end of January, early February, because this is a one shot vaccine and it doesn't require the refrigerators uh, that have made the logistics of the current vaccine so difficult. 
um, having to keep it at a certain coolness and then thawing it. And it, it, it's been complicated. They're doing the best they can and it's, it's accelerating and they're getting it out. But I think a lot of people would really be in a rush to get a vaccine if it was a one and done. And uh, when they announced that, that may very well be the peak of excitement in the short term that we consolidate the gains for, for a while, get a nice healthy pullback, and then the back half of the year strong. So I'm, I'm watching that, and I think that's going to be just a great thing when that finally comes out and um, you can get that done and get it, get it out to millions. And they said they can have a billion for the world by the end of the year. So that's, that's good news. Uh, in the short term, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine today, they said, will protect against the UK and South African strains they found in a lab. So that's good news that you're not going to have some mutation that's going to set us back three to six months. And now moving on to the article of the week, the Yogi Berra fork in the road stock market and sentiment results. So he was not only a great baseball player, but a great humorist. And, and one of the quotes he was famous for was, when you come to a fork in the road, Take it. <laughs> so, um, you know, we've uh, spent the last few months building positions in banks, defense stocks and energy. If you listen to or watch any of the podcast video casts, it's been a broken record and an unpopular record at that until now. So now everyone's getting on board. Opinion follows trend. And that's a good thing. And the people getting on board, quote unquote, late, they're not late. It's just getting started. This is a secular trend. So they missed the first 30 to 50 percent in some stocks, but these things are going to keep going uh, over the next uh, 12 to 24 months as cyclicals outperform in the first eight quarters of a new business cycle historically. And uh, we're just basically in the second quarter of the new business cycle. So uh, that's a good thing. Um, now, the one thing that I didn't anticipate, uh, we did talk about the vaccine announcement uh, and the election as catalysts. Uh, in October, and those certainly played out. I did not anticipate that the blue wave, that there would be a blue wave that would be the secondary catalyst, as we've seen this week with banks and uh, energy taking off uh, after the election. Uh, but, uh, but, but, you know, we'll take what we can get. I was, I was joking, um, you know, anyway, if I'd known energy and bank stocks uh, would have done this well, it might, it might have uh, changed my, my, uh, the way I voted, but nonetheless, it's uh, it's a great thing for everyone. It's it's a new chapter, and it's going to be a very positive thing. And uh, in last week's note, I said so. Everyone looking for a kneecapping after the new year, I think it's more likely that the market pushes higher and forces a bunch of reluctant money that sold the March lows and have been waiting for their big correction that never came to get in. The more likely scenario, the more likely scenario is a crisis fake out or delayed result from the January 5th, 6th downside catalyst uh, in which the put buyers think they've scored only to find a final push higher forcing the final reluctant longs in before the trap door is finally opened. Best guess February timeframe, but who knows? So, so far that's playing out. We got a huge panic fake out on Monday where all the put buyers thought they were getting paid and then we ripped higher. So um, we'll see how long this follows through. But my best guess is it might be to that to that J&J &J, uh, um, announcement when they release their phase three results towards the end of this month. Or maybe it's the inauguration. Maybe people will just be a little nervous in the first uh, few weeks until they see that, you know, this is what I've seen so far as a centrist myself, 
the majority of the appointments have been pretty much right down the fairway, you know, center of the road, starting with uh, Janet Yellen at Treasury. You can't get any better than that. Uh, many of the cabinet appointments have, have been just fine. So I think it's going to be very, very positive. So um, so that's that. And um, uh, OK, so. So that's that. We covered what we what we covered on Fox, and then uh, the the last shall be first. This is a key segment I want to cover. I touched on it with Liz Clayman on Fox Business, um, but what I put in the article was the quote from the Book of Matthew reads as follows: "So the last shall be first, and the first last." For many be called, but few chosen. And my commentary was, even Jesus understood the importance of sector rotation. <laughs> so let's get to it. Jurian Timmer of Fidelity Investments put out this table, which is uh, basically every asset class and their performance by year for uh, since 1984. So uh, 36 years. And I love these type of charts because when you actually study it, um, and I'm a mean reversion, reversion player, I like to look and see how asset classes move from out of favor to back in favor over time. And what you'll notice when you look at this, and you can find it at hedgefundtips.com, uh, scroll down under popular articles, you'll see the Yogi Berra articles, the first one, and this <clears throat> chart from Fidelity comes up. And you're going to see that rarely can one, one asset class hold the top seat for more than a couple of years. And we're going to talk about it. So, for instance, in the late 80s to early 90s, emerging markets held the top performance spot for a number of years, only to drop to the bottom over the next couple of years. So take a look here in the late 80s. So, two, you know, two years in a row, uh, it was, well, three years. It went from three to one to one, and it kept going, and then boom, by... Just a couple years later, it dropped. You know, the next year, it dropped to third to worst. And the year after that, it dropped to the absolute worst performer. So here it was in 92. It was the best performer after a string of runs here for three or four years. Dropped down to the worst just a year later in 1995. Um, and, you know, it stayed in the gutter for the next few years. Next was... Um, REITs had their run in the early 2000s only to plummet to the bottom spot. So you see here, REITs were, first they were at the bottom, 98, 99. They were third to last and second to last. Then they had two huge years. And sure enough, boom, they dropped to the bottom. So these things run in cycles. So what has been leading the way the last four plus years is large cap growth. You know, was the number two spot for 17 and 18, the number one spot for uh, 19 and 20. Every time in history you see, uh, look, EAF, it was held the top spot in 1987. That's Euro European, uh, 85, 86, 87. And it just, it dropped the next year, dropped more the following year and got close to the bottom for the next five years. So this huge run you've seen in large cap growth, what's been at the bottom? Well, what's been at the bottom is small cap value, large cap value, and you're, we're seeing that rotation already start to take place. They're gonna probably move up to the top over the next couple of years. Uh, while large cap growth, I wouldn't be surprised in within the, one of the next three years to see them in the bottom three spots at one point in time. Um, 
Other examples, uh, Japanese equities were the second to last performance in 96 and 97 after they blew up. And then, you know, the following they started to move up and then uh, by 99 they were the second best performing asset class coming from the bottom and this just continues to repeat itself so um, you know if you can find reasons for things to turn and they've been subdued for some time also happened here in 90 and 92 when the bubble uh, deflated and then by 94 they were the second performance Japanese equities again so uh, so, so we're looking for what's left behind, small cap value and large cap value, and how quickly can they get back up to the one or two spot. And then the things that are consistently up here, they, they mean revert. That's just the nature of it. And you're going to see large cap growth start to relatively underperform relative to that. And that's also supported by this. You know, here's where we are. Uh, value to growth, it's just turning and that's going to be relative outperformance. Again, it's not either or. You, you still want to have some exposure to, to select names uh, and you don't want to go so abruptly, but the relative outperformance is going to be, um, uh, I, I believe, small cap and large cap value. And that's what we've spent the last two quarters uh, explaining. Next, uh, Bespoke put out total returns for uh, global asset classes recently and keep your eye on the underperformers of 2020 becoming the outperformers in 2021 and 2022. So what were the big underperformers? Natural gas, oil, energy sector uh, on balance, UK equities and Brazil stand out as the last or the worst performers. They're already starting to turn. Uh, can they move to the top of the list in coming years? I wouldn't count them out. Uh, so that's a good thing to see. We already talked about Santa came to town. The other thing is uh, Ryan Dietrich over at LPL Financial, definitely uh, worth a follow on, um, on Twitter, uh, put out uh, a Democratic sweep performance since uh, 1951 when the Democrats held the presidency, the Senate and the House. And the fact of the matter is, it is worse performance than when you have a split Congress, uh, regardless of whether you have a Republican or Democratic president. If you have a split con Congress in both cases, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, it's the best possible scenario. Uh, the market does like gridlock because things can't turn on a dime. Uh, however, uh, a blue wave or democratic sweep, the average return since 1951 in the, those situations is 9.1% a year, which is not bad. So, um, so that's so that's the outcome. And then you couple that in the short term with 2.3 trillion of cares that you know usually takes about six to nine months to hit the system. However, most people have been in semi-quarantine, so it's just hitting their bank accounts. It hasn't circulated yet materially in the economy. Then we just threw another 900 billion on it, by the way, in case you weren't paying attention. Uh, so that's that's not even in the system yet, never mind the six to nine month lag. And now we're gonna get a few trillion more. So if that's not the formula for uh, some really rapid growth, I don't know what is. You know, last year in the midst of it all, we were talking about five or 6% GDP in 2021. I think that's going to hold true. Um, and that's where we are. So uh, so nothing to fear but fear itself as a 
a famous Democrat once said uh, in, in the context of the new theme moving forward in a Democrat-controlled environment. Uh, and when, uh, when you win all three branches, you get to do whatever you want. And that's exactly what we're going to see. Uh, and we're going to see a tremendous amount of spending and stimulus. So uh, that's what's happening. And the 10-year yield is telling you not only are they saying it, but they're going to be doing it. And, uh, and that's, that's, uh, that's where we are. So um, update on the Cobra Kai. Uh, if you recall, we put out this article, uh, in, I think it was September, yeah, September 24th, when um, Wells Fargo was at $22 a share. It got up to, I think, 34 this week. Um, and we were talking about the sentiment. This is a roadmap, and I can't find the source of this. This is circulated around Wall Street for, for probably decades. Uh, it just talks about the general sentiment as either a stock market or a single stock goes through uh, returning confidence. Then you get enthusiasm slash euphoria, and that's when you get the rollover that everyone ignores, and then you get panic, discouragement. That takes a long time to rebuild a base. Then you get the fake out like we got in May, and then you get long-term aversion before you start to head back up, get a little consolidation at denial. And the, the move from denial to returning confidence is the most abrupt, quick move in the entire process. And if you look at Wells Fargo, we just did this. Now, I did this chart. So again, you can just follow along. Enthusiasm to discouragement. Uh, we got the first fake out to anxiety. Our aversion was huge multi-month aversion and now we just got the rally up to denial where you get the consolidation and we just broke out and I, uh, this was uh done on wednesday night actually while i was on the plane and um now i think we're up between 33 and 34 dollars so this period here could be very very rapid and the catalyst we have coming by the way uh may very well be earnings uh, results and guidance and maybe we'll see the reserve releases that i've been talking about if you recall the industry took 110 billion dollars of loan loss reserves in q1 and q2 due to cecil uh, which was an accounting change that went into place at the exact wrong time in the middle of the crisis which required them to take the worst case scenario of losses all up front which uh, they had to assume 20% unemployment when it was at 14.1%. It's no longer, it's not, not only did it not go to 20, it went down to uh, today we saw uh, continued at 6.7%. So I think we're going to see a lot of reserve releases, which will be positive for earnings uh, and certainly for guidance. So that's coming up this Friday, January 15th. Uh, key thing to look forward to. Um, the other thing, uh, this was when we had, this was the chart from the Cobra Kai article in September. Uh, and we got, uh, a, the big sweep here down to 2025 and now we're up, uh, north of 33. So that, that just shows the 60 minute chart. And then here's the longer term chart. If you think you missed it, think again. I mean, uh, this were, we showed, um, many months ago, uh, that right around here, that 15 out of the last 16 times that this ADX crossed on a monthly chart, which, you know, we don't use this kind of stuff a lot, but we, you know, we couldn't understand why it wasn't returning. So you look at everything and then all of a sudden it just flipped uh, and held steady those returns. And we're just getting started here. You got a gap up at 35, 36 and then book value around $40 a share in the last two times that it traded below book in the 
great financial crisis and in the early 90s it recovered to book which currently is around $40 a share within months not years and I think we're going to see the exact same thing this time and we're getting very close so that's uh, really nice to see that play out. Uh, okay, so this week, uh, the sentiment was uh, elevated. As a matter of fact, um, AAII, they posted the wrong sentiment on Thursday morning. They posted 42% bullish. That was wrong. It was actually 54%. It was a technical glitch they had. Fortunately, they tweeted out, and I was able to change it um, change it uh, in the article. So it actually was 54. That's huge. I mean, that's euphoric levels. So that's why a lot of people are calling for crashes because they look at 2018, January 2018, we got that level of euphoria. We crashed, you know, uh, it was over 10% for the S&P. Um, and uh, they say that has to happen. But we also got similar type reads after the election in 2016. That I think is a more realistic uh, a lot more things in common with that period and you get this first spike and then you get a move back up we get the first spike we got a huge move back up here so uh, this is in my view which is why I've been more bullish than most of the last two months um, that uh, it's it's probably more likely to follow you know we had that huge drawdown in the early two, six, 2016 weakness into the election then we took off after the election, same type of roadmap. Uh, but you do get some of this sideways consolidation. Now, if you recall in 2017, we did not have more than a 3% drawdown at any point during the entire year. Um, I think we'll probably get a little bit more than that. We, we should probably see a healthy pullback after we finally squeeze everyone in. And I think that's going to be, again kind of optimism up to this new stimulus, up to the new administration, up to uh, maybe that vaccine announcement with J&J, &J, the single shot that's going to be widely available and, and will be easy to administer because it doesn't require refrigeration. Um, and, and then probably that's when we cool for a little bit. And even in 2017, you saw in looks like about uh you peaked in march and then you went sideways to down for about a month and a half before resuming the uptrend you could see that type of thing in february march uh or maybe more but uh i, I don't think it's going to be a 2018 like and and even if it is it's not the end of the world i mean you got trillions in the system right now you got the consumer just dying to spend their money and start traveling and by the way as far as the energy thesis back to that wall street journal article uh that's a huge huge driver of uh demand is uh is uh is airlines and air travel and that's going to come back roaring uh i i believe i think people want to go to beaches and uh palm trees and blue water and that type of thing so um Fear and greed was subdued, was um, basically neutral at 60 at the time of this article. Uh, and National Association of Active Investment Managers came down a bit. Their equity exposure dropped. I think it's actually picked back up towards the end of the week. So they're kind of getting positioned for that last um, you know, move up here, I think, that's going to finally draw everyone back in. And the article, the uh, my view for the week was the same. Um, yeah, there's euphoria. Um, I think the odds do favor a mid Q1 pullback after most managers have given up on a correction and followed the chase. I think we're getting close to that now, and I think it'll probably be justified by the vaccine, justified by further uh, trillions of stimulus, 
everyone will get back into the market and i think that's probably when we have to take a breather uh you know for a month or two and then pick back up in the back half and i likened it to wiley coyote running fast until he realized he's run a little too far and and uh drops off the cliff we're not dropping off of any type of cliff but we are due for for a pause uh uh after we move move a bit higher here i think uh so that's the story here we'll use any weakness that we do get in q1 and q2 to add more value and cyclical names to hold for the next three to five years why uh picture is worth a thousand words back to the value to growth chart i think this is just the beginning and there's tremendous opportunity in those uh, groups that we've been talking about banks energy and defense stocks defense and aerospace so uh that's where we want to be uh overweight uh moving forward wells fargo got yet another upgrade again opinion follows trend no one could downgrade it fast enough when it was at 22 dollars. now they can't upgrade it fast enough at 34 they now um upgraded to buy from hold with a price target of 38 turnaround is nearing a positive rate of change in many parts of the franchise oh a positive rate of change okay so that is good news and he expects wells fargo to be one of the few banks to show declining expenses for the next few years that deals with the efficiency ratio that we've been talking to uh talking about for the last four months uh is i think 10 percentage points higher than its peers uh, so there's a huge amount of room to cut, and that's largely related to outside vendors. Charlie Scharf couldn't believe he'd, he'd never seen a business that had so many outside vendors. So that's where they're trimming a lot of the fat, and that'll be a good thing moving forward. The yield curve steepened even more this week. That's obviously positive for banks, and you see what happens historically when you get that steep and financials just take off. Financials just take off, and financials are now taking off. So uh, good things to see that happening. And it's not only um, the pictures that are valuable, but the words matter too. Uh, this is from FactSet uh, talking about financials earnings. JP Morgan Chase leads earnings increase since September, uh, September 30th. The financial sector has recorded the largest decrease in its expected earnings decline of all 11 sectors. That's a double negative, decrease of the decline. It means it's improving. Uh, so it went from negative 7.5% year on year for Q4 2020, by the way, which we're going to hear on Friday, from it was expected to be negative 24%. It's now only going to be negative 7.5%. Uh, the sectors also witnessed the second largest increase in price, 28.5% of all 11 sectors since September 30th, overall 54 of the 65 companies, 83% uh, in the financial sector have seen an increase in their mean EPS estimate during this time. So their estimates keep going up every week since September 30. Of these 54 companies, 28 have recorded an increase in their mean EPS estimate of more than 10%, led by Capital One Financial, Wells Fargo, uh, and uh, and then also they, they mentioned J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, and Capital One have been the largest contributors to the increase in expected earnings for this sector since September 30th. So that's great to see moving forward. And uh, okay, moving right along to earnings. Uh, we did the Dow 30 stocks plus 
10 stocks in the S&P that were not either in the Dow or the uh, NASDAQ 100. And in the last 60 days, these uh, 40 stocks have increased earnings estimates cumulatively by six, uh, 63 basis points for 2021. So that was good to see. Earnings are up for all 40. Uh, and we did the, and that's that. And then um, some economic data for this week. We've covered a, a number of points. Obviously, consumer credit was nice to see today. The unemployment rate staying at 6.7% was good. Uh, as those regions reopen, I think this non-farm payrolls is going to be a non-issue, but the, tri the, the stimulus is going to help. The other thing that we saw, which is critical, is average hourly earnings ripped higher to 5.1%. The reason that is, is that government, uh, private business is now competing with the government. They have to pay their workers a lot more in order to get these people to come back to work because between the unemployment plus the extra $300 uh, a week, many people are, are making more money at home than they would going back to a lower paying job. So in order for employers to get the workers that they need they've had to raise wages uh and i think that's going to be sticky moving forward and with the new administration and congress i think they're going to uh push for a higher minimum wage i i think that will persist uh and uh and that's going to be part of the inflation cocktail moving forward uh in addition with uh massive borrowing and stimulus so uh keep your eye on wage inflation uh average hourly earnings were up eight tenths of one percent Oh, I'm sorry. Month on month, we're up eight tenths of one percent. Uh, year on year, we're up five five point one percent year on year. So that's that's good to see. Um, ISM non manufacturing crushed it. That was at five point seven two versus five. Uh, I'm sorry, fifty fifty seven point two versus fifty four point six expectations. Also over fifty five point nine last print. Good to see. Uh, Non-manufacturing business activity was also beat 59.4 versus 55 estimates. Um, as I said, continuing claims continue to come down. That was good to see. A uh, huge draw in crude. Oh, what was the uh, rig count? Rig counts went up. Okay. Uh, oil rig count went up eight and um, total rig count went up nine. That's pretty natural with the increase of prices. Uh, of prices. And let's see, okay, the API, ISM manufacturing prices beat expectations. ISM manufacturing PMI came in at 60.7 versus 56.6 on Tuesday. So the data continues to improve largely. Construction spending was a little light on Monday, but not a dramatic, you know, missed by 10 basis points. Um, and then earnings to look forward to next week. Uh, a couple home builders early in the week, but the key story is going to be on Friday. JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, uh, and PNC are going to report. So pay close attention to that. And with that said, thanks for tuning in to our 54th podcast, 64th video cast. Uh, we'll be back next week, same time, same place. Thanks for listening in. Make it a great one.